All right, Andrew, as you may or may not know, I'm a bit of a soap opera fan, and I need to know, because I'm assuming that you're a soap opera fan, obviously, what was your favorite soap opera of the 90s? You know what they say about assuming. (laughs) (laughs) If you're going to break my heart again, I can't take it. I am not a huge soap opera fan. That said, I still have an answer for you. Okay, okay. One word, passions. Okay, you're redeemed. That was in 1999, so you barely made it. Oh my God, producer Chris, please, please, please find a clip of the town witch Tabitha turning her doll sidekick into a real boy. Timmy, that's right, Tabitha. We're going to win. The 90s had like daytime soaps, which we're going to get to in a little bit. And they had some amazing primetime soaps like Melrose Place. Yeah. Which is like major, right? And so today on People in the 90s, we're going to talk about our issue from February 21st, 1994, which had the stars of Melrose Place on the cover. You listen to me, you silly bitch. You say one word to Kyle and I will hunt you down and tear you to shreds. Do you know what also happened that week? Tell me. The number one movie at the box office was Reality Bites, which we're going to have to get into later on the show. But you know what? You better do it now, and you better do it fast, because the world doesn't owe you any favors. Asa Base was at the top of the charts with a sign. Such a good jam. I saw the sign. And of course, Melrose Mania came along with Heather Lockler, Andrew Shu, and Laura Layton. Oh, I'm so excited. I was hoping we would get to this one. And it works out beautifully because today's guest is Lisa Rinna, who appeared on both Days of Our Lives and Melrose Place. All the things that happened, we couldn't do that today, I don't think. It prepared you for Real Housewives. 100%. Billy is in the house and I'm freaking out. And if you don't know what that means, stay tuned. Anyway, I'm Jason Sheeler, Deputy West Coast Editor at People Magazine. And I'm Andrea Laventhal, Style and Beauty Director at People Magazine. And this is People in the 90s, where each week we dive deep into an issue of People Magazine from the best era ever. Hello, Andrea. Hi, Jason. Are you ready for what may be my favorite episode of this podcast? I know I keep saying that over and over again, but this may be my favorite one. Like sands through the hourglass... So are the days of our lives. I know, and I'm excited for you. (laughs) I love this episode for you. I was a major Days of Our Lives fan. You were not, and that's your own problem. But like like a lot of people with my stories, right? Like I inherited my love of it. Like it was Days of Our Lives was always on in my grandma's house. And so like, you know, the, the families of Salem, like the Brady's and the Demiras and Bo and Hope and Billy and Marlena and Sammy and Carrie and Austin and like those twins who turn out to be aliens, like they were all as part of my life as like church camp. Or like the annual Toadsuck Festival. And like, you're not going to be like, what's the Toadsuck Festival? I can't go into it. I can't, I can't help you there. I figured I couldn't even Google that. So I would just like, <laughs> let it, let it go. Okay. So my connection to soap operas like yours is through my grandmother who loved her stories. And anytime, of course, I was sick and home, there was always a soap opera on. My mom didn't really watch them, but like somehow soap operas came into play. I guess that's because that was the only thing that was on daytime TV and we didn't have like Netflix or Amazon to just like queue up one of my shows. So I I watched them. I always appreciated the camera work and the lighting on soap operas. Always very vibrant. Oh my God, the lighting. Is, it's like filmed through like an iPhone smeared with Vaseline, right? Like it was like so flattering. Beautiful. You may or may not know like, you know, soap operas are called soap operas because they were originally engineered to sell soap. Like literally, they were like, you know, in the 1930s, like on the radio, like radio executives wanted to increase ad revenue to their stations. So they began to court businesses which sold household products. Since the majority of the people at home during the day at that time in U.S. history were women, 
that Procter and Gamble, like you know, became one of the first advertisers to sell like Oxidol soap powder, which is like a laundry detergent that became known as soap operas. The Beulah Show, brought to you by deep cleaning Oxidol for the family wash. And they were like the stories on the radio, right? They were the stories on the radio, and then like you know, so The Young and the Restless, which first aired in 1973, came along. Days first aired in 1965, General Hospital in 1963. Like, they're still around. But, like, look, I, 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 with all due respect to all the other soap operas out there, the only one that really matters, because, you know, I get to say it, is Days of Our Lives. And it was just so incredible, especially in the 90s, which were the last gasp for soaps, right? Like, both daytime and nighttime. You know, we had Melrose Mania on the cover, because that show defined the mid-90s in so many ways, like, clothing and hair and like, you know, the need for a really attentive HR department. Remember like all the stuff that happened at D&D advertising? And using the word bitch liberally. We loved all of a sudden. (laughs) It was like we could use it in advertising and on TV. We just like threw it around. Meredith Brooks, I'm a bitch. Remember the ad campaign, Mondays are a bitch for Melrose Place? It was brilliant. We couldn't get enough of being able to say the word. I mean, like gay bars shut down on Monday nights for Melrose watch parties. Like it was so appointment television. So, okay, wait, let's go back though, because... So we'll get to Melrose in a second. Yeah, go ahead. As someone who did not grow up loving soaps, I want to get to the root of where your emotional attachment, I understand it was like a family thing, but what is it about soap operas that you think just captures people, not just their attention, but it becomes like they really become ingrained in it? For sure. Here's the deal about soap operas, right? Like it's, there's several reasons, and this is just totally off the top of my head. Like I think they're at once incredibly relatable and incredibly fantastical. Well, yes. Who doesn't have a lifelike doll named Timmy who helps foil your evil plans. <laughs> well, passions is like, like okay. <laughs> I, I love that we're going to hang on to your one example that you can talk about, but like put, putting passions aside, it's like they take place in hospitals and police stations. And so like so all this is like super relatable, but then they happen to be otherworldly beautiful. Mm, yeah. Right. And so it's like, it's like this hyper, hyper, hyper sexualized reality of everyday life. And then it's like, what do you do when you're watching a soap opera? Like you're probably like, sitting around in your house in like your robe or your underwear. And so you're in this really vulnerable position watching these characters. I think you really get attached. That's a good point. To these TV people. And then lastly, time moves very slowly on daytime television. Like there was a blackout in Salem one summer, but literally all summer was like one day because everyone was naked and sweaty for like the entire summer. Wow. Not a lot happens. And so it's very easy to carry on with these soap operas, with these characters. And the, and the characters never change, right? Because like, Bo Brady's been been Bo Brady forever. Sure, sure, he, she has. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. I love that you, do, that's, that, that would be Mr. Bo Brady to you. Well, we still have a lot of things we need to resolve before we can be together again. I know that, Hope. But I'm not going to walk away from you. They were huge, huge in the 90s. And like, I'm just going to talk to you as if you know all this. And so just like. Well, yeah, no, I'm fascinated. I mean. Just nod and smile. I mean, this was like, it's so crazy. Like like Carly was buried alive by Vivian. Like, you know, and Vivian Alamein. Like, you know, Carly was given. An, like you said, highly relatable. Well, Carly was given an herbal medicine that put her into a death-like coma. And she woke up to found herself an underground coffin. But the coffin was like kitted out with lights and a two-way speakerphone and an air tank. Oh. I mean, like, this is just like so crazy. And then like John Black, who like I t- was completely in love 
love with. Like he was a zaddy before we like talked about zaddies, right? Like he was always having amnesia. That's because Stefano kept erasing his memory using like mind control methods. And then at one point, Stefano managed to extract John's memories and download them onto a CD. I mean, that's so 90s, right? Wow. I mean, it was just like, I mean, like major te- like technological achievements were happening. And then, then there's like the Salem stalker. Like there were all these victims. These victims were found alive and well on the island of Malazwin. Here, get mm-hmm. this. Guess what Malazwin is? Couldn't tell you. It's New Salem spelled backwards. I mean, this is like basically lost, ripped off days of our lives, right? Like that's where lost came from. Who writes these things? Because holy shit, I feel like. Like genius. So I feel like in retrospect, the soap operas never got the respect they deserve. Just hearing you rattle off these plot lines and characters the most creative minds of our time. And by the way, like in all seriousness, like a lot of these soap operas, not only were they created for women in the 1930s, but they were largely written by women also, which, and so there's a little bit, there's like far more gender parody in daytime television before primetime, like years and years ago. But right around the time of Melrose cover story, like as Amanda Woodward was shaking up things around the pool, over in Salem, Marlena Evans, mm-hmm. played by the one and only Deidre Hall. Yes. She became possessed by demons. You're getting weaker, Marlena. Give up the fight. And it was like, seriously, like the most extra storyline on any soap ever. So basically, after being given mind-controlled drugs mm-hmm. by the evil Stefano Demira, mm-hmm. Marlena began displaying all the classic symptoms of a woman inhabited by the devil. Classic symptoms to everybody. Mm-hmm. Yellow eyes, menacing voice, the ability to both levitate and transform into a jaguar. <laughs> But I mean, like, but seriously, like, and this is like, then it all swirled into like, like a froth of like lovely, like cappuccino foam as her on again, off again husband, the amnesia victim, John Black, he suddenly remembered that he's a priest. Oh, so he can. And he was able Mm -hmm. to perform an emergency exorcism. You're not going to destroy me, priest, because I will destroy you first. I mean, this is why we love soaps. I might have to go back and watch some of these. I'm like, I'm speechless. That's so beautiful. I'm just telling you, it was just some good stuff. (laughs) So Melrose Place (laughs) used essentially the template of the traditional soap opera in that, you know, you had all these attractive people living in one place and outrageous storylines. I mean, just outrageous, right? You would call it like an evening soap, right? A nighttime primetime soap. Is that what they were called? Yeah, we had primetime soaps because there was a legacy of of this with Dallas and Knott's Landing and Dynasty throughout the 80s, right? And those went away and we didn't really have a lot of primetime soaps that were major until Melrose came along, which technically was a spinoff of Beverly Hills 90210 with the same producers, Aaron Spelling and Darren Starr. But it was really like the grown-up version of nine or two and oh, in the first few seasons on Melrose, were like they were just kind of okay, and then along came Heather Locklear, who was just a special guest star, and that was her billing. Special guest star Heather Locklear, and she shook that place up. And so for the entire time Heather Locklear was on Melrose Place, she was always billed 
in the opening credits as a special guest star. Because she was special. No, she like brought it up. And like, and it was like really like, I mean, like in such a drag queen. And I mean, as a compliment, like, I mean, everything was just so over the top, right? Like all of those gals were like just such like drag queens with like, you know, the, like the hair and the makeup and the antics. Everything was just so exaggerated, but you like lived for it. I have taken this company and sent it into a downward spiral. The only mistake I ever made was not firing you, you conniving bleach blonde piece of so we called it in the magazine a compulsively watchable high trash hit with almost unbeatable demographics. It was the number two rated drama in the Nielsen's among 18 to 34 year olds. We said it was dynasty for generation X. Number one among this age group was 902 and O. also created, like you said, by Fascinating. Darren Starr and executive produced by Aaron Spelling. In the article, we interviewed Darren Starr, who says that it when it first premiered in 1992, um, it had a few weeks of high ratings, even though it had poisonous critical response, and then it sank. And Darren Starr says the problem was that it was a spinoff of 90210. They couldn't define it, and that they tried to portray actual problems of 20-somethings. Like they said they had an episode, I don't remember this one, of course, about Hottie Jake taking the GED because he never graduated from high school. <laughs> And everyone was like, boring. So they said that's when they added the affairs, the sex, the dirty stuff. And that's when it took off. And of course, they added Heather Locklear. But it did. It was like just kind of like a bit of a snooze until Amanda came in as the manager of the apartment building. Even like Amanda's storyline started to peter out. And so they needed a new Amanda to come in to keep things interesting. And this is where Lisa Rinna's character of Taylor enters the picture. What's better than one bitch? Too. Don't think I don't know what's going on here. It's pure Amanda Woodward. Taylor, shut up. I nailed it, didn't I? And Lisa Rinna, she knew from her days, days, how to do that. So that's the whole thing, right? Like, it's like what's incredible is that Lisa Rinna was on Days of Our Lives from 1992 to 1995. And she was Billy and she created the role of Billy, which, you know, in soap opera culture is a big deal because they don't get a lot of new characters. And so she created a brand new role of Billy. And Billy had like all sorts of things. Like Billy was like a former heroin addict and she was also a former prostitute. But then later she founded her own cosmetics line called Countess Wilhelmina. So from Countess Wilhelmina to Rinna Beauty... Better name, by the way. Now, Lisa has her own line of what else but lip kits. And it's just so fitting considering that Billy was a beauty mogul herself. And may I just personally recommend the lip kit in the shade birthday suit, a beautiful neutral. Then she like left Days of Our Lives after three years. And here's the thing. I went back for the show and I watched an interview with her with Cindy Crawford, who somehow was guest hosting the later talk show in the 90s, which was like, sure. Anyway, so Cindy Crawford's, of course, <laughs> just, just, just nod mm-hmm. and smile. So Cindy Crawford is interviewing Lisa Rinna about her role in Days of Our Lives and why she left. And Lisa Rinna said, like on the show, that she left because they wouldn't pay her enough, right? Um, how upset were they when you left? Well, I think it, uh, they would have liked me to stay, but they didn't get me to. So, and they could have. Do you know what I mean? Was it a, like show me the money kind of well, situation? Kinda, well, kind of, you know? I mean, I hate to be greedy, but, you know, you kind of have to ask for what you need after right. a while. You know, you yeah. negotiate and you're like, well, I'm worth this now. And Right, no, it's supply and demand. And it was just, it was time to go, I think. I mean, that was just the way my plan was. So, Andrea, when Lisa came on to Melrose Place, I I was just thinking about this. She actually replaced 
Hunter Tylo, who was fired for being pregnant. Do you remember that? I don't, but that is a scandal. If I've ever heard one, you think that we can ask her about it? I think we're going to have to ask her because, I mean, I think Lisa testified in court. It was this huge deal. And of course, how would that even happen now? But she came on to Melrose Place and like there she was on the hottest TV show of the 90s. And she was there to play like the badass bitch. And she like loved every minute of it. Mm-hmm. Sounds like our Lisa. Which may or may not have prepared her for what we call modern day soap operas, a little franchise called Real Housewives. Mm-hmm. Yes. So many people are watching Lisa Rinna now, but I can't wait to hear about her then. I want to know more about her soap opera days and her Melrose Place days. That's what I'm curious about right now. I mean, frankly, for me, it's far more interesting. Well, we know. We know. Let's get to it. All right, Lisa, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm a fan. I'm a Days of Our Lives super fan. Are you? He is, yeah. It was a big deal for me growing up. And we love you from Days and Melrose Place, of course. But before we get to all of that, I have to ask you, tell me what was going on in your life in February of 1994. What was your life like? Oh, my God. Let me think. Okay, so I was with Harry. I was on Days and I was working so many hours a day that I did nothing else. I was Mm. learning dialogue, 40 pages of dialogue a night. Going on set, I even slept on set a a few nights because we would work until one in the morning and have to be up at five. And I actually slept in my dressing room a couple nights. That was a blur. That was just a blur of work. I don't remember anything other than working 24-7. Well, that's funny because the next question Mm -hmm. was, what's a memory you have of the 90s that sums up the decade for you? Like a surreal, that's so 90s moment. And I'm like sleeping on the dressing room floor. Is that it? There's got to be more. Well, yeah, sleeping Mm -hmm. on the dressing room floor and like having an affair with the guy who played my brother. Well, not an affair, but like, you know, a couple one night stands (laughs) with the guy who's my brother. Lisa, thank God for you. (laughs) On Days of Our Lives? Yeah. Patrick Muldoon and I had like a thing. (gasps) Wait, oh my God. Patrick Muldoon, like, hold up. Austin Reed on Days of Our Lives and Andrea, he was even on Melrose Place. I I mean, Lisa, that's major. Yeah. And by the way, I had this affair with Patrick before I met Harry. (gasps) We figured, we figured. Of course. So Days of Our Lives, what I would love to get your thoughts on, there is this moment in 1994 when Marlena levitated. Oh, yes. And it's it's, it's kind of thought to be like the seminal yeah. soaps moment of the 90s. Oh, like, yeah. I mean, Days was killing it. I mean, y'all were killing it at the daytime Emmys. Do you remember that period of Marlena being possessed? What was that like for you? I do. And you know what my strongest memory is? There are two memories. I remember Carly had to film all these scenes buried in the coffin <laughs> and how they shot that and that the side of the coffin was cut out. But she literally had to get in that coffin And then I remember the levitation of Marlena and gumballs falling from the sky. And they, yes, I don't know if they were supposed to be gumballs. Maybe it was supposed to be hail, but it was gumballs. And I remember running around the set, picking up these gumballs. And those are my two strongest memories. Because you got to create the role of Billy Reed, which that doesn't happen a lot, right? A lot of people tend to inherit roles. Yeah. And like you were kind of immediately in a love triangle and then like, Hope was not Hope. She was Gina, but she looked like Hope. I mean, this was like, this is the period where people really talked about soap operas the next day. It was really water cooler conversation. What was it like being a soap star in the 90s? Well, you have to remember, you know, I came from Medford, Oregon, and I grew up watching the show with my mom. So imagine getting on the show. To me, in in my world, it was like winning an Academy Award. It was like the biggest thing. And I was always just surprised because in our industry, people look down on soaps and soaps were at the bottom of the totem pole, right? And I Mm -hmm. thought, 
you're all crazy. I'm doing the greatest thing ever. And I thought it was the coolest thing. And my mom thought it was the coolest thing. So I never felt bad about it. And everybody I worked with was embarrassed that they were on the show. And I thought, what is wrong with them? This is like the greatest Hmm. thing ever. So I could never understand that because in my world, being on that show that I grew up watching and playing opposite Bo Brady, I mean, what's better than that? Mm -hmm. Well, you had a crush on Bo growing up, didn't you? I did. Of course, everyone did. (laughs) I, I know I did. Right. But then again, remember, when I first came on the show, it wasn't Peter Reckle. It was Robert Kelker Kelly. So I ended up playing opposite a different bow. And then Peter Reckle ends up coming back. And remember, when I first came on the show, Hope was not on the show. And that's why they brought Billy on, because I think it was that Christian was pregnant and she went off Mm. on maternity leave. Anyway, that's that's the story I was told. Amazing. Okay, you have people like Jason who remember every moment, every storyline, <laughs> whether it was back then or even now. Like, do people still like talk to you as if you're your character? Like, what were your crazy fan encounters with people really wanting to like deep dive with you about this? Well, you know, once a soap fan, mm-hmm. always a soap fan. So I still get it to this day. I will always get it. I People will always come up to me and say how much, you know, it's such a generational thing to watch a soap opera with your mm-hmm. grandmother and your mother and people have such great memories, you know? So it's always such a positive thing when people see me because they grew up with me, you know? They they literally grew up with me and with anybody on a soap. So I think it's always a great memory. There was one time I was in a bathroom and it wasn't so much Billy because Billy was pretty beloved, but Taylor McBride Mm -hmm. was hated. And I had somebody, yeah, somebody like tried to come and and get in my bathroom stall. They were really upset with me. And I remember that, (gasps) that that was about it. No, they were like, they had some resentments for you. Correct. I mean, soap operas were so huge back then. I mean, there were soap opera conventions. Yes. I mean, those were major, right? Like thousands of super fans converging all in one place. Oh, my God. Like, like what were those like? It was insane. Like, I, again, soap opera fans are like nothing else. And they are diehard. And I mean, those we traveled all over the place going to those. And it was crazy fun. I guess the closest thing now is BravoCon. Yes. It has kind of taken up that mantle, it, actually. I think that's I think that's a good point. It really has. Have you watched Days of Our Lives recently? Oh, I always, you know, every time, let's say I'm home, I don't feel well, or, you know, you're in bed, I always check in to see what's going on. It's just, and sometimes I'll put it on in the kitchen just because it feels homey to me. Oh my gosh. Are you still like yelling at Sammy? Um, You know, I'm surprised she's back. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the good thing is you can always go home, you know? So I want to pivot a little. Jason, don't get mad at me. I want to talk about Harry. I, I know. I can't let go of days. I know. I can't let go of Billy. But I, well, I know. Well, it's, hard. Okay. it's hard. It's hard. I want to know how you guys met, when you fell in love, who introduced you, first date, whatever you want to tell us, please. Quick story. I was working at the eyeglass store up the Glen while my friend who owned the store would pay me three nights a week. And I hadn't gotten Days of Our Lives yet. And Harry came in to get his glasses. And I gave him his glasses and didn't think twice because he was Harry Hamlin. And I was just like, oh, my God, it's Harry Hamlin. And long story short, my boss at the eyeglass store was good friends with Harry. So one night I was bringing back my boss the key because he would never let me keep the key. He would like be having dinner up at the Glen Center and I'd have to go give him the key. I work from like six to 10 at night. 
So I went and I gave him the key and he was having dinner with Harry Hamlin. And he said, sit down with us. And I had a glass of wine and sat with them. And I had just seen Cirque du Soleil for the first time. And I was so blown away. And I just like waxed poetic about Cirque du Soleil and blah, blah, blah. And then I left. And so then I got a call from my, my manager of the store and I was in the shower and he left a message on the answering machine. And he said, wow, that was so great last night. And my friend Harry really liked you. And if he was single, he would like to date you. <gasps> and I thought, well, that's gross because he's married and ew. Cause at the time he was married to Nicolette. Mm-hmm or at least we thought he was. Mm. But she had left him three days earlier for Michael Bolton. Oh. No. Yeah. It was that close? Yeah. Three days? Yeah. It was three days. Then what? And then oh, we, I find out that, you know, he's no longer married. And so then I get days of our lives. And he calls me and asks me if I'll have dinner with him. And I just gotten home from work. I was exhausted. But I mean, who says no to Harry Hamlin, right? So I said yes. And I literally threw on a pair of jeans. I had a white V-neck T-shirt and like cowboy boots, no makeup, ran down to Toscana to have dinner with him. And he could not believe, because I guess the women that he'd been set up with, you know, came like hair and makeup ready in like full evening gowns with a bottle of perfume and jewelry on. It was like The Bachelor. They were like The Bachelorette. (laughs) (laughs) They wanted the first impression, Rose. Exactly. And here I show up with no makeup, a T-shirt, and he likes to say my T-shirt had holes in it, and so did my jeans, but they did not, by the way. (laughs) He he sort of embellished the story over the years. I had a a fully just plain T-shirt. Anyway, he was so blown away by that. He thought, oh, my God girl of my dreams. And then it goes on for there. Were you intentionally underplaying it or was that your style? That was at the my time? style at the time. I was tired. This was in the beginning. So I wasn't that <laughs> tired because I literally had just gotten the show. Maybe I think I'd only been on the show for three weeks. It was really new. So your first mention in People Magazine, by the way, I think it's in late 92 or early 93. And it's about Harry. And it's about, and can I read it to you? It's, it's, yeah. um, and Harry said, divorce can produce the absolute worst behavior I've ever seen, says Hamlin. 42 has gone through the experience with both Falcon Crest, Laura Johnson, and most recently, not Landing's Nicolette Sheridan. Now Hamlin is seeing Days of Our Lives, Lisa Rinna, even though, and this is a quote from Harry, quote, people told me don't date another actress, he says, but I like the camaraderie based upon common experience. If you're dating a lawyer, how do you tell her that you're depressed because you got rejected from a movie audition? Oh, I love that. <laughs> and you know what? There's truth to it. It's true. He's right about that. Like the, and look at him now. So funny. You know, I think for Harry, three times was the charm for him. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I mean, well, obviously. So Andrea's going to get super excited now. She so pivoted to Belrose's Taylor. What was it like joining the cast? So you auditioned for the role. And I know that you were leaving days, but you may not have wanted to leave days, but you seem to have wanted more money and they weren't going to give it to you, maybe. No, it really wasn't that. I, I knew that I had to leave days after three years or I would never leave days. So interesting. Yeah. Mm. It wasn't about money at all. That's not true. It was that I could have easily stayed and I I instinctually knew if I stayed I would never leave because that's what mm-hmm. happens to mm-hmm. most people and I knew I had to take a chance at that point 
or I, it would, I would never be able to see what would come next. And what was it like auditioning for Melrose? Oh my God. It was again, I watched Melrose. We had Monday night Melrose parties. I mean, it had been on for five years. I was a huge fan. Mm. So these moments are surreal for me when I get to audition for a show that I watch and love. I mean, imagine. So it was just, and I had done a couple of Moves, mm-hmm. movies of the week before. So I didn't get Melrose at, right out of the gate. I'd done a movie with Rob Estes in South Carolina and I think one other, and then Melrose came along. So again, it was a truly amazing, exciting experience. Were you like a little nervous? What's it like when a show has been on for five years at the height of its popularity and you're the new girl mm-hmm. and you're kind of, let's be honest, really hot? Well, you're scared shitless because it's never fun to be the new girl coming in to a very popular, established show. It's scary, scary, scary. But starting from the top, Heather Locklear could not have been nicer and more welcoming, which then sets the tone. And I always felt very welcome there and and really good. And that's all due to Heather. Oh, that's so nice. So she really set the tone. But for you in terms of acting, in terms of craft, what were some differences between daytime and nighttime soaps? Was there a learning curve? Like what did, I mean, you were entering a major, like Aaron Spelling, Darren Starr. I mean, this was a major, you know, production. What did you learn? Well, I think what got me prepared for it was the soap because that's, you have to really be on your game and learn dialogue really fast. And what Melrose was doing at the time when I got on the show is, they were shooting something called double ups because they were shooting like 24, 26, 28 episodes a year or season. And they were shooting two episodes at a time, sometimes three. And that's Mm. not normal. And I would say that my training on the soap prepared me to be able to do that. The tone was already set. I think Mm -hmm. when I walked on set and, you know, Mr. Spelling too, there's a, there's a tone set that is, really professional, really great. Everyone is really nice. And there's a pace. And, you know, when you come on a show, you have to learn the tone and the pace really quickly. And I think it was just really clear and it was easy to step into. I love that you just said Mr. Spelling, by the way. Mr. Spelling. It's so reverent. That's really beautiful. Well, that's the truth. I mean, if it weren't for Mr. Spelling, I would not be who I am today and where I am today. So can we talk a little bit about your role, about, about Taylor? You were brought on and you were going to take over kind of the bad girl role from, from Amanda, right? What was that like? You know, at the archetypes at time on, on television, you know, women were kind of broadly drawn. Did you ever feel uncomfortable with like, you know, the on-screen battles or, or, or the character at all? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> nope. I loved it. I mean, that, what a juicy role to get to play. I mean, uh, yeah. back in that time, I mean, I look back at it and I can't even believe that that was allowed and that we got to do that. And I got to dress the way I did and, and the fights and getting slapped by Peter and like all the things that happened. We couldn't do that today. I don't think it prepared you for real housewives. (laughs) Oh, my whole life has prepared me for real housewives. 100%. You were like, Oh, (laughs) I've done this. Like I've done all this. I've got this. (laughs) What was it like off camera with 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 you and Heather? Because I, I was watching some of the battles even today. There's this one where you actually blocked her slap and you were like, you're so predictable, Amanda. Like, so. You know, uh, Heather and I had a great relationship and she just was such a star. And she said, you know, I learned so much from Heather Locklear, probably more than anybody. I learned a lot from Heather and I learned a lot from Jason Bateman when I did... Um, the Hogan family for six episodes. Right, yeah. Two of the most professional 
talented people in this business. And what I learned from them is what I take into my professional life and what I've shared with my daughters to this day. They are true pros. And so Heather and I had a great time. I mean, you know, we weren't best friends off camera. We didn't hang out every minute. You know, we were actors that worked together that really respected one another and allowed each other to have the space to play. And it was just a brilliant experience for me. We were, I was researching the show and kind of refreshing my memory. And I forgot about the whole thing with the lawsuit, which was kind of dramatic at the time. And that must've made it even like a little more awkward to come on because it was supposed to be Hunter Tylo, right? Yes. Well, that never feels great. You know, you never, you never really want to be the person or the actor that replaces someone. Yeah, that doesn't feel good. But yet here we are, like that's the business. And, you know, what are you going to do? So I, I never felt like it was clean. And you know what's ironic about it all is I was called to trial. And during the case, I became pregnant. Oh, my God, the irony. Mm-hmm. And the irony of my sitting there in court because I had to go and I was I think I was three or four, maybe I was four months pregnant. I think I was showing at the time. I don't remember, but I thought, well, here's, this is kind of karmic, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. And Heather was later pregnant also. Uh, Heather was pregnant at the same time. We were both like Heather was about ready to give birth and I was just pregnant. So the whole thing was pretty fucked up. You know, it was. Oh, completely. And it's it's hard not to think about it today, right? Those things just wouldn't happen today. Oh, Mm -mm. can you imagine? If that happened today and she was fired because she was pregnant and didn't get to start the role because she'd gotten pregnant. Can you imagine? No, no, it's just it's unfathomable. And then you later posed pregnant for Playboy. Yes, I did. (laughs) You know, I'm crazy that way. And I thought being pregnant was just the most beautiful thing. And, you know, that baby girl who was on the cover of Playboy with me is 23 years old today. Oh my God. How about that? Little Delilah Bell. Amazing. <laughs> what was that conversation like with Harry when you're like, so I have an idea or I got an opportunity, Harry, Hamlin. Ah, I'll never forget it. I was at the newsstand. Remember, that's where we got our magazines. That's all we could do. So I was at the newsstand and I literally saw the cover of Playboy and a light bulb went off in my head. I called my publicist. I ran it by her and she like nervously giggled. And she said, you know what? I'll reach out to... Mr. Hefner and see if that is even a plausible idea. Cause I obviously I was pregnant. And then I said it to Harry and I think he just thought I was out of my mind, which he does a mm-hmm. lot of the time. But then, you know what he does is he thinks about it mm. and he really noodles it. And, and then he said, I love it. And then of course, Mr. Hefner came back and, Oh, you know what I had to do? I was working on Melrose. I had to take Polaroids so that they could see what I look like pregnant because he didn't know if I was like, you know, no way sexy pregnant or like maybe it wouldn't be cute. So we went into my trailer. I got the makeup artist. I said something like, you know what? I'm going to take some shots for Harry for Valentine's Day. I don't know what I said to her. Right. Like, what are you going to say? She came into my dressing room. All we had were Polaroid cameras at the time. And you know that wood paneling that Mm -hmm. they put in the inside of your trailer, that paneling? Mm -hmm. We took a picture in front of it and it was quite beautiful and like vintage and weird looking. Sent him to to half and he loved him. I didn't realize it was your idea. (laughs) 
was my idea. We took it to him, yeah. That's what I'm like remarking on. Amazing. And it turned out great. Well, we are so grateful for your time. You've been so game, but this is so much fun. And thank you so much. And we'll um, see you soon in People Magazine. Yes, how exciting. Thank you guys so much. It was great talking to you. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you. Bye-bye. I just have to say, Andrea, I can't believe I got to talk to Billy Reed. This was like your super sweet 16 of interviews. I felt like you truly came alive. The sparkle in your eye has never been so twinkly. I hope she knows that you were not being creepy. You were being enthusiastic. Okay. Well, now I know that you thought I was being creepy. I honestly think I scared her a little bit. And so, Lisa, if I scared you in any way, I apologize. I was legit excited. Hey everyone, I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce Season 5 of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. Previously on Chasing Fabio. I, d- I don't have anything. The attorney is like, you know, not getting back to me. Like that. that's it. I don't know what to do next. Jason, I think we just need to recenter here. So, Jason, you know, normally when I get an update from you, I'm a little bit tough. But now I'm in this with you and I feel this. After last week when we really broke down what it means to you and in turn me to have Fabio on, this is important. So I ask with love and support this week, where are we with Chasing Fabio? Well, first of all, I'm glad that Fabio has brought us closer together because that's really what he did for America in the 90s. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, it's a unifier, red state, blue state. We can all agree on Fabio. Right. But I'm honestly a little lost because as we all know now, all of us, I have tried too hard Mm -hmm. and like nothing is a bigger turnoff, right? Like I've tried too hard. That said, (laughs) maybe he lost his phone Right. Maybe Eric Esquire and Marina Del Rey has lost his phone. Sure. Maybe they're without Wi-Fi. That could happen. It it happens. Maybe there was a a family emergency that he's been tending to and he got backed up on his emails. Totally. So I'm like, maybe it's time to do like bumping this to the top of your inbox. (gasps) Let's bump it. That's my least favorite thing that people do to me. So let's do it to someone else. Bumping this to the top of your inbox. Yes. Let's bump it. Okay. Also 90s, a bump it, you know. bump it. Um, okay, it's keeping me up at night. I feel like I just need to do just one more and more. There's just like, you'll never hear from me again. <laughs> if right. I don't hear back from you, I'll stop. I need to turn to my BFF here. Like, you know, I need for you to help me write. Like, what do I say at this point? From my experience of getting someone's interest and attention, anything you can do to draw attention to your mouth is good. So send yourself chocolates or maybe Wait. some strawberries <laughs> or... Um, you can also... This is sounding really familiar. You can show a little skin because it reminds boys of being naked and then they think oh of sex. God. And I'm, listen, the best dating advice <laughs> I've ever gotten was from Cher Horowitz in Clueless. And I feel like it worked sort of for her because 
she got Christian in a way. He became her bestie, even though he, mm, you know, mm, mm, didn't mm, mm. like women. But that's besides the point. I mean, 43 days ago, I got a regards. I mean, so that's there's hope there. OK, so we can't email Eric again. And as much as I would love to send you to his office with chocolate and a strappy top, I don't want you to get arrested. That's considerate of you. So I think we might have to take this to 2021 Instagram. Let's put out a plea on social media. Somebody has to know somebody. Mm, mm-hmm. Let's send it out to the social okay. media universe. Ask for help. Let's ask for help. Ask for help. Okay, we're gonna get some mojo back. We're gonna ask for help. Maybe like less pleading, less stalking, you know, less begging. Keep it breezy. <laughs> Keep it breezy. Keep it breezy. Easy breezy. Easy breezy. Yeah, cool. I'm good. Hey, hey everyone. Yeah. Hey everyone! If you know, no big deal. I'm not. It's no, no, it's, no, it's big, no big deal. deal to me, you know. But if you happen to know Fabio no. or anyone who knows Fabio, or if you know his whereabouts, if you could just like you know text us an address or something, you know, maybe a direct sure. phone number. Let's do that. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. Emojis. Thanks. Throw some emojis. Yeah. No. No biggie. Smiley face. Okay, that's what we're gonna do. Jason, I know that when you were flipping through this issue, you saw. And read the close call article on page 38. First of all, I'm freaking out that the, the CFDA Awards, the Council of Fashion Designers of America Awards, the Oscars of Fashion, were actually covered in print in People Magazine because like for a little gay boy reading magazines who want to be a fashion designer in you know the early 90s, I was like all about the CFDAs and everyone in Arkansas was like, what are you talking about? They were like, hmm, go back to Bible study. <laughs> Okay. So I lived for this too. The glamour, the supermodels, the men who love them. It had everything. This was, I mean, to be sure, it was the 13th annual Council of Fashion Designers of America Awards. And it's worth noting that probably what maybe the most 90s of fashion designers, Calvin Klein did win designer of the year. And for me, like Calvin Klein is like everything, especially in the 90s. Because of the fragrance ads and like the, his slip dresses and I mean, all of that minimalism and uh, Calvin Klein is everything to me. And me. Uh, hey, guys. Hi, producer Chris. Yes. Now that we're talking about high fashion in the 90s, I have a surprise for you. Oh. People magazine recently sat down with Kate Winslet and asked her about her favorite red carpet look. And she chose the dress that she wore to the Oscars in 1998 for Titanic. Oh, we're getting some Alexander McQueen up on this show. That's right. A favorite red carpet moment for me, I think was when I attended the Oscars with Titanic because Alexander McQueen was doing his time with Givenchy and he had made me this extraordinary green dress that was like sculpture. It was like embroidered sculpture. I have to be honest, the dress was not entirely comfortable to wear. Or, or sit down in but it was worth it because he had made it and then li- years later the dress was actually sold in a charity auction for an enormous amount of money and I felt really thrilled with that too because it wasn't just going to be a dress that sat on a hanger I mean it really raised something like I think $60,000 or something extraordinary and so that for me was a big moment because it wasn't just about an item of makeup or how my hair looked it was definitely a moment for me I love hearing stars talk about their old looks because we obsess over them. So it's kind of nice to know that she was as enamored with that gown as the rest of the world was. I mean, that was a nice and even vital interruption. But we'll go back to our regular scheduled programming. And I think that's something we haven't talked about on this 90s podcast yet, something that you and I 
feel strongly about are supermodels and what they meant. These silent film stars, we keep saying there's no social media, but that's the truth. There's no social media. They had no way of speaking for themselves in, in the press because they weren't usually interviewed, but they became these sphinxes of our time that we really projected things on. And, and so little articles like this, for me anyway, were when I got to like read about models when they weren't modeling. I love it. I mean, I don't know if you would call this model off duty because I guess in a way they were on duty. But if you look at the style and the way they're dressed, you know that they dress themselves or had like, you know, just a friend help them because they just they look really, I don't know, like themselves, just like glamorous, gorgeous, but not overstyled or overdone. It's it's great. It's fun to look at. And I have to say, like the chicest picture in this whole thing is like Kate Moss smiling like you rarely saw her smiling with teeth with Veronica Webb. And can I read you the caption? I was going to say, Jason, if you talk about this picture and don't mention, again, to use the B word, bitchiest caption probably I've ever read, I'll be mad. So go for it. Actually, I can't. I, well, no, I'm a, as a Kate Superfan, I can't read it aloud. You have to do it. <laughs> of course I will. It, it hurts my soul. Supernovas of the moment, Kate Moss and Veronica Webb lit up the night, parentheses. Later, Kate actually went out to eat. Ah! We would never now. And I can't believe we did then. But I have to say again, I mean, maybe it was the Melrose getting to our heads. Bitchy. All right, Andrea, one last thing. I just read the review of Reality Bites in this issue. Did you read it? I did. It was one of my favorite movies and one of my favorite movie soundtracks of all time. Oh, it was also it was on a page in this in this issue that also held a review of Ace Ventura Pet Detective. And it was in a Melrose Place issue. And so that's probably like one of the most 90s things I've ever said in my life. Yeah, that was a 90s triple decker. Nice work. It's a Ben Stiller movie. I think it was his first as director. And it's about a documentarian, played by one on a writer, who was working on a project within the movie called Reality Bites. I mean, meta, 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 right? Mm-hmm. And her friends were Ethan Hawke and Janine Garofalo. And the reviews were mixed, to be sure, right? I mean, even our own Tom Galato was unimpressed. Mm, that tracks, if you know Tom. <laughs> Tom's been working at People for a long time. It takes a lot to impress him. Tom, I love you. I say that respect, love. I mean, Tom, I'm kind of scared of you, if, if I can say that. But the movie is like essentially like a time capsule of both Gen X grunge. And the movie's probably a reason like, that Austin became Austin, right? Oh, yeah. And like why lifelong Austinites have bumper stickers that say keep Austin weird. So what the movie also was, was a cementing of Winona Ryder as 90s royalty. I mean, we know her today because she's had this resurgence with Stranger Things. And what's that commercial where- She was a L'Oreal spokesperson. I mean, like so beautiful. In the 90s, she did, get this, Mermaids, Edward Scissorhands, Dracula, Age of Innocence, which garnered her an Oscar nomination. Mm-hmm. But what I really want to talk about and what I can't stop thinking about still is how she chose Ethan Hawke over Ben Stiller in that movie. And I'm still upset about it and confused, frankly. What well, was a terrible lesson to women that you should choose the guy who tortures your heart over the guy who's nice to you and has a sob? And it's like, ladies, follow your heart. Go with the guy who doesn't like you. <laughs> well, in a tiny bit of life imitating art, Did you know Winona got Ethan the job? Like Ben Stiller had never even heard of him. And so Winona suggested Ethan Hawke for the movie. And one more thing, because the true hero of the movie for me is Janine Garofalo. Oh, so good. And her baby bangs. I love her in the movie and I love her in real life. But in real life, she was fired while making the movie, (laughs) then rehired. And she cut those bangs without permission. And I somehow can't seem to stop sharing 30-year-old gossip. Is this the part where you're seeing Lisa Loeb stay again? You say, and now she's on those Geico commercials. 
She's on every other minute. Can we just say Janine Garofalo's bangs? That's so 90s. Janine Garofalo's bangs are one of the rare, rare exceptions to my rule that baby bangs never work, no matter who you are, no matter how cool. They actually did work on her. And honestly, like you said, she's the MVP of the movie. I think her bangs are. They really added to her character. It's taking everything I have not to segue this into must love dogs, but I but we have to stop. <laughs> We don't have to stop. It's our <laughs> podcast, Jason. We can take it wherever we want, as long as it's not in the aughts. <laughs> now it's ours. <laughs> it's ours now. <laughs> so, Jason, are you going to turn people in the 90s into soap opera in the 90s after that? This is now basically a Days of Our Lives podcast, but only in the 90s. I can't believe I'm going to say this, but you're totally going to get me to watch. I mean, your conversation with Lisa, I felt really left out and I hate that. So congrats. <laughs> I'm going to start watching soaps. I mean, don't be teasing if you can't be pleasing. Like, I need for you to actually do these things that you promised to do. It's like, I've got the list is growing. The list is growing. <laughs> People in the 90s is hosted by me, Jason Sheeler, and Andrea Laventhal. It's produced by Jason Sheeler and Chris Jacobs. Executive produced by Kim Rittberg and David Flumenbaum. Edited by Chris Jacobs, mastered by Erica Wong, and with production support by Elisa Sessler at People, Persia Verlin, Matt Sav, and Rachel King at Pod People. I'm Andrea Laventhal. Thank you for listening. And I'm Jason Sheeler. <laughs>